Hello and welcome to Chasing Himalayan Dreams, the podcast. My name is Susan and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Chasing Himalayan Dreams. Have you had dreams you put aside? Do you feel a hiking adventure in the Himalayas is a mountain too far? I believe you can do it if you have a moderate fitness and an inability to let your dreams go. This podcast brings you the book. Every episode is a chapter, like an audiobook. I'm using text-to-speech technology to create every episode. So do start listening and enjoy. Gasp 2. But first, down to earth, the team loads up the ponies with our backpacks, kitchen stores and other paraphernalia. Tiny Dotre with its cobblestone lane has a couple of inns and tea houses, including a giant sign saying Momos, I'm not game to eat street food before the trek, and I'm a bit sleepy from the travel sickness tablets I gulped down in Darjeeling. The last time I ate at an inn before a trek, I was sick. There's nothing worse when you must stop every three minutes behind a tree and ensure that you are not on holy ground near a shrine or prayer flag. Raju and the boys troop off to feast on momos, and perhaps ponder on how we will manage on the trek. I find churin sweets and suck them with delight, sticky and sweet, full of spices and rock salt and smelling like sulfur. Why would anyone eat them? An acquired taste, but excellent for preventing car sickness and bringing back childhood warnings that churin sweets were made of cow dung. We gulp down cups of hot tea in a checkerboard painted tea house, like Alice in Wonderland, but there's no Mad Hatter. Only bottles of red hot pickles that could blow our heads off in a fashion that would thrill the Red Queen. The air is crystal clear and the mountains glow in the distance, close enough to touch. We swing on our day backpacks, retie the laces on our hiking boots, adjust our trekking poles and stride off, watched by barefoot red cheek imps. Into the mountains at last, on my own two feet. The rocky path between towering pines ends at a school playground with the school bell ringing and kids lingering for a last look at the trekkers emerging from the forest. I feel unkempt compared to the little ones with crisply ironed uniforms, gleaming shoes and perky ribbons framing their shining faces. But they must go to school and I must start my trek, but not before a photograph. I miss my own kids, for a moment. I wish this dream for them. Today's big goal is Tonglu. From the base I squint upwards into the sun, much higher than the slopes I trained on in Queensland. Tonglu is the highest point today and then down to Tumling for the night halt. We sally out for the three-kilometre hike, eight and a half kilometres later I stagger into Tonglu, only to have my breath taken away again, not by mountains this time but by a spectacular sunset over the clouds. The uneven rocky path winds uphill all the way through forests of mossy oaks and rhododendron wreathed with creepers and vines. Thick with slippery fallen leaves, the rough surface is set with irregular shaped rocks. I imagine this as a layer of leeches in warmer weather. Alert and aware of every step, I'm glad I have my trekking pole. Two would be better, but one is still good. Oops, a slip there. But no damage. I'm annoyed with myself because I tire easily. The steepness makes me stop frequently, and Keith takes to counting out the steps and pointing to a tree, a bend, a marker as my goal. By the end of the day it is barely ten meters before I must stop for a rest. What was I thinking? I could achieve a goal at sixty that I had set when I was sixteen? Obviously, I mistook procrastination for thinking. I doubt my fitness and months of preparation. It doesn't help that villagers skip past us wearing slippers and chatting happily. No trekkers today, 
Instead, four brisk mountain men, with dark tailored jackets over their coathers, and black Nepali caps overtake us. Are they mountain dryads carrying musical instruments? No. They live in the villages here and it's a sad day. They're playing at the death ceremony this evening of a 16-year-old. He died a couple of days ago, after a game of football on the field in front of the school. He was taken at 16, the same age when the first spark of the Kanchenjunga dream ignited for me. We collapse in a little grassy plateau with magnificent views, for lunch. Today's route has magnificent views, if not obscured by trees or clouds, reviving me every time it bursts out on us. The ponies, loaded with luggage, catch up with us, and we have lunch together, lolling in the dried grass, looking out at the sleeping Buddha. I pass a huge chocolate-covered donut to Namgyal, the banana was enough for dessert. The donkeys don't loll, they stand patiently alongside the trail, bells tinkling, tails flicking away flies, their noses in their own lunch bags. My eyes droop and I want to sleep in the sun with magnificent views of Kanchenjunga before me. But there are ever more switchbacks to negotiate and the end recedes ever more. I swear that Tonglu is teasing us by retreating upward. After lunch I can barely move, the tiredness worsens, and every step is a challenge. A mercifully flattish stretch is too short. Looking up, Tonglu looms over us, the matchbox size of the lookout seems to sneer at us. Downhill, thick white mists creep up along the valleys, rising steadily to envelop us in a cold damp embrace. We clamber up with rocks beneath us and cloud around us, before breaking out of the mist to find ourselves at Tonglu, with the low sun slipping beneath a fluffy red-fringed blanket of clouds. We are skywalking when sunset flares above the clouds. The valleys below the clouds are denied a sunset today. We join the road that doubles as the border between Nepal and India. At Tonglu broken stone heaps, or jelly, obstruct the road, that's one reason for the four-wheel drive's only rule on this road. From the lookout at Tonglu, a tiny dollhouse stotre is barely visible, and I can marvel at the steepness of the day's climb and how far we have come. Across the ridges, Darjeeling is a series of pale smudges on the horizon. We are finally higher than Darjeeling. For the first time we can see across at the ranges to where we must go, Sundakfu, a couple of ridges and 1,000 meters higher. Raja rejects the tourist hut in Tonglu as inferior, even though it has magnificent views. We skip downhill into Tumaling, grateful both for the gradient and the semblance of a smoother path. The wind has picked up in the evening and slaps the ubiquitous flags about. Prayer flags are everywhere and in many different colors, one color for every element from red to white, every element gives praise to God and sends up a prayer with every breath of wind. We don't meet any other trekkers on this route, but we meet a few young blokes in the viewpoint and later in Tumaling. Tumaling is in Nepal, and... Looking south over the bare hills and plains, it's all Nepal. Looking north it's India, Sikkim, and Tibet. A feast of mountain countries. From Tonglu a ribbon of white concrete runs along the ridge down to Tumling and beyond. We turn left onto a rougher path into Tumling village, where every house has window boxes bursting with flowers. Most of them are tourist lodges or private guest houses run by enterprising mountain women. There is plenty of room in steep gabled, gaily painted lodges, with a dining room, kitchen and rooms above or below. There are more women than men here, most of the men have gone down to the plains to work. We're fed and watered with hot masala tea and snacks, followed in a couple of hours, by dinner. Our food and care party have arrived here ages ago and are patiently waiting for us to stumble out of the mist. This hike is turning into gourmet tour, 
for with rudimentary cooking facilities, Shyam and Dalaya turn out the first of magnificent meals for us. It's pepper chicken, dal, chapati, sabji, vegetables, and ruse galas for our first meal on the hike. And as much tea as we want, or even ginger honey tea. We've sneaked along something a bit stronger than ginger honey tea. A couple of shots of brandy do not go amiss on a cold night, because the temperature drops to below zero degrees centigrade and there's no heating in the rooms. But this is part of the adventure. Raj tests our resolve with a local drink of hot tong bar, brewed from millet and served in a mini wooden barrel with a bamboo straw. The drink is chaang, the barrel is called tong bar. The millet grains are fermented, and topped up with hot water before serving, releasing the alcohol in the beer. It has a sour yeasty taste, an acquired taste. We try it for its local color, but I prefer brandy. Dinner is in the dining room, alight with the warmth of a roaring wood fire. Only one table is set. In the season, the dozen or more tables must be packed with trekkers. The kitchen is set up for cooking for the hungry masses, walls lined with open shelves and cupboards, gleaming with brass and stainless steel vessels, all kinds of glasses, cups and big cooking pots better than any designer catalogue. But the next day I see the family's own kitchen hut, red glowing embers in the hearth. Smoke-darkened pots lie beneath shelves stacked with clean dishes, pots and steaming vats. A pair of pink-cheeked teenagers with smooth jet-black hair and perfect makeup are chopping and adding thick finger-sized chips of white radish to a mountain of chopped vegetables, for a fermented dish called singhi, they tell me. If you are buying food from the tea houses, avoid the ever-present Maggi or YY noodles. It has no nutritional value, it creates garbage, and, worst of all, it can kill the wildlife. Try the local soup made from gundruk, fermented sack, which is a kind of green. Think miso soup with flavors of India. Istu bread and oats, for barley porridge and millet rotis, also good for the gluten intolerant. Vegetarian dishes are whipped up with wild ferns, wild mushrooms, bamboo shoots and singhi. Churpay is hard yak cheese, good for chewing on while climbing. The four-legged contingent in the lodge is one cat and three dogs of indeterminate breeds. There is no doubt who the boss is. The cat hisses and arches her back at the skulking dogs, who attempt to get close to the fire and the food, and with a triumphant leap, she's up onto my lap. The dogs wander away to lie despondent on the doorstep. I'm glad they are furry dogs. We linger by the fireplace, unwilling to return to our cold rooms. There is plenty of accommodation all along the path, but none of it is heated. And don't even dream of piped hot water. Morning and night Darley brings us a small bucket of warm water for minimal ablutions. There's no question of bathing, unless you are one of those yogic masters who pour buckets of ice-cold water over themselves. The wood-panelled room has a bay window, with flimsy golden curtains that face outwards. The curtains flutter even when every pane in the window is shut tight. It's time for bed, and I snuggle under heaps of blankets and quilts, one with an all-over Apple logo. I wonder fleetingly about copyright. I pull off my gloves to write up my notes by hand and plug in the devices for charging. There is no mobile connectivity, though all the lodges have phone numbers posted up and I see people making calls. Perhaps they have an appalled telecom provider. I download the photos onto the laptop and finish up the notes for the day before trying to sleep. Day 2, and we have completed one stage of the trek. I'm in sight of my goal. Tomorrow we must be up early to watch the rays of the rising sun bathe the sleeping Buddha in a rose-gold light. (laughs) 
I hope you enjoyed this chapter of my book. If you liked it, send me a message or let me know. You can find the ebook or print book on Amazon. Also, there's a free book of Himalayan mandalas for you to color in on my website susanjaganath.com/freebies. Keep listening.